Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out, and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully, in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Valley. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Storm Cunningham. Good afternoon or good morning to you, I should say. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me on your show. Listen, thanks very much. It's an it's absolute pleasure to have, have you on. So Storm, tell us, who are you? Where are you calling from and what do you do? Well, calling from Washington, D.C., and for the past 20 years or so, I've been basically uh, helping folks restore the planet, uh, revitalize their communities, boost climate resilience, and been doing it from the standpoint of uh, initially an author. Uh, My first book, The Restoration Economy, came out in 2002, and uh, that was basically my escape from the nine-to-five world. And um, since then, uh, have primarily earned my living as a public speaker, workshop leader, doing workshops, uh, you know, keynotes all over the planet, you know, dozens of countries and dozens of universities, uh, basically helping people uh, revitalize places for a living. And uh, it's uh, recently morphed into something a little more uh, substantial in the Reconomics Institute at Reconomics.org, where we're now offering certification so that people can actually get certified as a revitalization or resilience facilitator and earn their living uh, doing the kinds of stuff I've been doing, only more hands-on. I don't actually do anything useful. I mean, I, I just basically write about and talk about other people who are actually doing useful things um, and uh, help them learn the most efficient ways of doing them. I like that. So you're, you're like the Vaseline. You're the bit that makes it all go smoothly, right? <laughs> to move things forward. Uh, no, I've, I help them understand you know, how other people have done it well. Yeah, you know, so I'm kind of, I've probably heard more stories of successes and failures regarding making places better than anybody else on the planet. Because, uh, uh, you know, from all of those hundreds of talks and workshops I've done around the world, most of them were at conferences and summits, you know, where there are dozens of other speakers. So for every one I did, I usually heard at least a dozen. And uh, so I've been spending the whole time looking for commonalities, I guess you could say, or universal principles, you know, what in the cities that have come back to life in a spectacular way or neighborhoods or ecosystems or whatever, uh, in the ones that have really come back from a desperate situation into just uh, wonderful vibrancy and health and productivity, what did, what did the successes have in common? Hmm. And for the failures, what did they have in common? And so my most, most recent book just came out last year called Reconomics, uh, The Path to Resilient Prosperity, really distills that in 400 pages, distills all those lessons as to you know, what exactly it takes to be successful in bringing a place back to life. Oh, wow. And 
I'm, I'm sort of curious. Well, first of all, I mean, have you seen a change? I mean, can you, you know, over that, you know, you're saying with your first book in 2002 and, and sort of ultimately now, well, what would have been 18 years later, you've, you know, this other book. And I mean, have you seen remarkable change? Are, are people learning? Are, are we growing and, and improving? Uh, absolutely. It's very easy to get pessimistic, uh, if not downright depressed, looking at the situation from a global standpoint. You know, obviously, you know, in terms of uh, species extinctions and carbon in the atmosphere and all of this, you know, things are still getting worse. But then when you take a look at more of the microscopic uh, perspective of particular neighborhoods, particular cities, particular organizations that are doing this really restorative, revitalizing, regenerative work, all of a sudden you see the exact opposite. You see places that are the epitome of what it's going to take to restore the climate, to revitalize the uh, biosphere. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's like an individual farm that's on the leading edge of regenerative agriculture, which, you know, my, my first book, The Restoration Economy, was one of the first books to document uh, regenerative agriculture because I wrote it back in the mid nineties. <laughs> it took, took six years to uh, finish writing it. And at that time, you know, there were just a few people on the planet who were even thinking about it, like the Rodale Institute. They were the ones who really pioneered it. And uh, so when I came out with a whole chapter on regenerative agriculture, people were just scratching their heads and saying, what do you, you're, what you're saying, farm? I mean, farmers are the enemy. They're the ones who are destroying nature. You, now you're saying that a farm could actually restore the watershed and restore biodiversity and restore native pollinators and actually have more topsoil at the end of every year than it had the year before and better quality topsoil. And, you know, uh, and now more recently, the reason you hear regenerative agriculture mentioned a lot more frequently is that about five years ago, they documented that when done properly, regenerative agriculture actually sequesters four times more carbon than reforestation. So <laughs> now it's become a climate solution on top of all those other benefits. And on top of all of that, it's more profitable. Uh, it, most uh, farms that have switched over to regenerative uh, techniques, they don't necessarily have more productivity, more products that, that come out the other end. What they've done is slash their expenses by 60 or 70 percent which goes straight to the bottom line. And all of a sudden, an unprofitable farm becomes highly profitable. I say, you're on mute, Pete. Got it. Uh, well, <laughs> so what, what is it that makes that stand out? I mean, when you say this, I mean, are, we, are you heading down the, uh, the organic side? Or what, what's, what is it that makes it stand out for somebody who's just sort of really learning about this? Uh, you're talking about regenerative agriculture? Yeah, the regenerative agriculture, yeah. Well, the... Uh, the there's a lot of, uh, like in almost any environmental movement, there's a lot of, uh, you know, greenwashing these days, uh, a lot of big companies jumping on the bandwagon now that it's become popular. And uh, some of them, you know, in many cases, it's good news. I mean, that's what you want. You, you want these good things happening on a massive scale. So when somebody like General Mills comes in and commits six million acres to regenerative agriculture, it can be considered a good thing. The trouble is, 
that there are a lot of companies out there, the ones who have been making their money all along on industrial agriculture that depletes the topsoil and poisons it, uh, you know, the ones who are making uh, farm equipment and fertilizers and herbicides, uh, they're looking at it and saying, okay, how can we how can we spin this in such a way that we sell more of our traditional crap? And uh, and they're doing that. So a lot of them will ignore the other aspects of regenerative agriculture, like restoring the watershed and restoring biodiversity uh, and just focus on one aspect like no till. So they'll say, OK, well, we're not going to plow the fields anymore. So that means it's regenerative. But because you're not plowing the fields anymore, you really need to spread a lot more glyphosate on the on them. You know, Roundup. And uh, so, yeah, you, you, you got to be careful. There are people who are uh, uh, not always the best actors. <laughs> but in general, um, yeah, uh, no-till is a major component of it. When you stop uh, disrupting the topsoil like that, then uh, it can become a lot more uh, firmly uh, entrenched in, in root networks so it doesn't wash away during, uh, you know, heavy storms. Uh, so you're conserving its topsoil that way. Uh, also, by not, not tilling it, not dumping uh, toxic uh, pesticides and herbicides and uh, industrial-style fertilizers on there, you're not killing the biome. So now the all the living creatures that make good topsoil are coming back to life. And uh, the uh, and by not uh, spreading toxic uh, materials on there, you're helping to restore the watershed. And a lot of people actually do re uh, ecological restoration on their farms. So if they've got a stream running through there and they've got some cattle, for instance, uh, they do some what's called riparian restoration. You know, riparian is the edges of streams and rivers. And uh, so they'll plant those in native uh, trees or bushes or whatever that help keep the cattle out of the stream. And also shade the stream uh, because a lot of the um, the streams that are dying are dying of heat. You know, we've taken away all their shade and now the fish that require cool water like trout uh, can't use the stream anymore. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, I was going to say it's relatively simple, right? When you oh, explain it, I got it. It's, it's all simple. It's all simple. <laughs> So it's not yeah. about, sometimes it's not about doing more. In fact, it's the reverse. I I suspect mm -hmm. even as you speak there, I mean, uh, some of those savings or some of the, the actual profitability comes from doing less rather than doing more, right? Right, right. You know, just having exactly. that. Exactly. Oh, so it makes Trouble sense. is that there are a whole lot of massive uh, corporations out there that make their money off of doing more. Mm. Mm. And they've got no interest in seeing us do less. Well, Okay. Before we really get into, I suppose, first of all, what, what does fire in the belly mean to you then, Storm? I mean, what's, what is it all about? Well, I mean, it's, I've always been a, a fairly fiery guy, I guess you could say. Uh, um, you know, you, I graduated high school in California uh, during the height of the hippie years in the San Francisco Bay Area and naturally became a hippie and, um, and had my first entrepreneurial experiences selling uh, substances that i'd rather not mention and uh herbal herbal and, obviously yeah so uh uh yeah i was rebelling at that point but then everybody was rebelling if they were my age so um that was kind of like going along with the uh the crowd and then i decided that i really needed to know more about how the world works how the universe works you know what um 
you know, before I go off to college, you know, I, I need to know who I am and, you know, how I fit into all of this. So at that time, the uh, general consensus was that all the truth was over in India. Mm. So uh, I stuck out my thumb and, well, saved up a few bucks to fly over to uh, Italy and uh, stuck out my thumb and hitchhiked from Italy over to India and Nepal and looking for the truth. And, uh, oops, excuse me, I forgot to turn off uh, my Skype. Um, and uh, about a, took about a month and a half to get over there. Had uh, quite an adventure along the way. Uh, that was back in the days when you could hitchhike across Afghanistan without stepping on landmines. So what are we talking here? Were you, is this the 80s? Uh, no, that would have been 71 well, okay. uh, when I made that trip. I, I did another trip uh, uh, around this, uh, just before that um, where I was living on uh, Ibiza and uh, yeah, just hitchhiking all around Europe. Um, but uh, what happened when the fire really hit my belly <laughs> uh, was when I got back from about three or four months of uh, seeking the truth over in the Far East. And uh, within, within a month after returning, I was in the Army. Uh, not drafted, strangely enough, having been a, a rabid, peace-loving hippie, um, I found myself suddenly saying, you know, I really need to get my act together. And I've been living off other people now for a while now, living off the kindness of strangers. And it's been fun, but uh, I really need to learn some kind of skill and, you know, get my head on straight as far as actually being a contributing member. Uh, I had no interest in slaughtering Vietnamese farmers at the time and uh, was quite happy not to go over there. As a matter of fact, if they had tried to, draft me the year before, I would have headed off to Canada or Sweden or somewhere. Uh, but all of a sudden, it just felt like the right thing to do. And uh, just, I figured my dream was to get trained as an airframe mechanic by the Army and become a bush pilot in Australia or Alaska or somewhere like that. And the Army had other ideas in mind. Uh, they decided, uh, so uh, the Army decided based on my um, aptitudes that I'd be a better uh, uh, medic. And I had absolutely zero interest in being a medic at that time. But they went ahead and sent me to medical school and uh, turned out I loved it uh, once I got into <laughs> it. And so I asked them, well, you know, here I am, just an enlisted man. What's the absolute best medical training I could possibly get? And they said, well, that's in special forces. You have to become a Green Beret. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> a couple of months ago, I had long hair and wearing a Sherpa robe, hitchhiking around India. And now they wanted me to become a Green Beret. And they said, but the good news is that you get the medical training first. So if you don't like special forces, you can just drop out because it's an all-volunteer outfit. They don't have anybody who doesn't want to be there. So... Um, uh, I figured, well, heck, yeah, uh, the training course is nine months and it's supposed to be the most intense medical training on the planet, you know, because the uh, Greenberry medic, you know, the Greenberry teams operate behind enemy lines. Mm. So 
they're primarily teachers. You know, Green Beret team is supposed to be able to train and equip a 4,000-man guerrilla battalion, and they're not supposed to actually do the fighting themselves. So they're basically teachers, and the medic teaches medicine, the weapons guys teach weapons, and engineer teaches how to build bridges and blow them up. And uh, so uh, I went through this, and, you know, their their idea of medical school encompasses everything from jungle medicine, you know, herbs to veterinary, uh, dentistry, OBGYN, because you're living with these tribal people in many cases, like the mountain yards in Vietnam, and saving their water buffalo is probably the best way to make friends with them. So, uh, you know, you learned all kinds of stuff, you know, cutting out tumors, cutting off legs, you know, we did it all. And uh, uh, I discovered while I was in there that, man, these are the best guys I've met in the army. They're the most intelligent, uh, totally non-conventional, non-army types. I mean, they they chose the people who were who were capable of operating on their own. You know, you're supposed to be able to complete the mission even if the other 11 guys on the team are are down. And uh, so they basically wanted entrepreneurial mindsets and uh, free thinkers who could invent their own solutions and not have to go by the book. And uh, I thought, man, I love this culture. I'm going to stay with them. And <laughs> so I ended up becoming a, a medic on a scuba team. Oh, wow. And that, strangely enough, led to my becoming uh, a ecological restoration champion. Uh, because some 20 years later, there was a German scientist operating in Jamaica who was trying to restore Jamaica's coral reefs, which had, they only had about 10% of them left at that point. And he had invented a, what was became the world's first coral reef restoration technology. And he needed some volunteers to help, you know, dive qualified volunteers to go down there and help them install these experiments on the ocean floor. So I went down there for a week and saw these places that he'd been working on for the last uh, couple of years, places that had been absolute lifeless deserts on the ocean floor, you know, coral reefs that had completely been killed um, within just months coming back to life, covered in colorful, hard and soft corals and fish and all kinds of life swimming around them. And, you know, it was just, that's about as close to doing magic for a living as I could imagine, you know, and I thought, wow, you know, all of a sudden I realized that we don't have to be satisfied with just sustainability. I mean, you look around at the planet. This place is a total mess right now. Who wants to sustain this? Um, We need to make it better. And I I realized, you know, we don't have to be satisfied with just conserving what's left of nature. We can actually restore the damage we've already done. And that led to my first book, The Restoration Economy. Oh, wow. I mean, that's that's quite something. And and even as you speak, I'm sort of... I'm inspired by, you know, the fact that you might necessarily have the tools, you know, whether you are, as you say, you're sort of almost behind enemy lines type thing, you know, but you're <laughs> teaching and training. You're not necessarily coming, but you're you're there to impart knowledge and inspire mm-hmm. as opposed to coming with, you know, truckloads of stuff. It's the reverse, right, is to, to use what the tools that you have at hand. Yeah, basically, I'm do same, doing the same thing I did in Special Forces, only uh, yeah, restoring places rather than blowing them up. Well, that's quite a quite a shift. It really is. 
what uh, just I mean out of interest I mean that's that's quite a pivot I suppose and was it really understanding in the fact that one you got to see so many places around the world I mean when you start to see what's possible in terms of regeneration is that what inspired you was that something just you were drawn to well yeah once you become attuned to it and become aware of the fact that restoration ex- even exists you start seeing it everywhere uh, especially you know after I wrote that first book which documented uh, it created kind of a taxonomy of eight sectors of restorative development, uh, four of them in the built environment, which were catastrophe rest- uh, reconstruction, uh, brownfields redevelopment, you know, which are contaminated lands, uh, you know, infrastructure renewal and uh, historic uh, you know, heritage structure restoration. And then four of them are on the natural side, which are ecosystem restoration, fisheries restoration, agricultural restoration, and um, uh, watershed restoration. So you put them all together and you basically cover you know, uh, virtually all key life-giving functions on the planet. And um, the after I wrote the book, or even while I was still writing it, uh, I became so attuned to it that I realized I was seeing restoration, redevelopment, regeneration, revitalization, reconnection, repurposing, renewing, reusing, you know, all the re-stuff. Uh, was, I was surrounded by it all the time and just never really noticed it before. Wow. It's it's so inspiring, actually, to see that. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming here, and it's never right to assume, it's I mean, to restore the planet, one of the best things we could do is get off the planet. Is that, is that fair or does actually to some of this restoration... What, and destroy somewhere else? Well, hopefully not. We, we go and we learn our lessons and we go somewhere else and leave the planet to, to repair itself, right? Is that, uh, learning well, our lessons is a mighty big assumption. Well, we're just in this sort of magical world that we're going to. But I'm assuming that actually nature is, is you know, and, and I suppose going back to it, the best thing you can do is let nature do what nature does. Is that a, is that a fair... Oh, I'm sure if humans disappeared from the planet, it would restore itself really fast. I mean, Mm. we wouldn't get back the species that we've lost, but in a few million years, nature would evolve species that were very similar, um, you know, at least functionally to the ones that uh, are extinct now. So, but that's not likely to happen, uh, you know, unless a a really serious pandemic, I mean, (laughs) one that makes the present one uh, look like a joke, Um, but something came along and wiped out 90% of humanity, then sure, the planet would start restoring itself pretty well. It would still be radioactive for another few tens of thousands of years, thanks to Chernobyl and Fukushima and and all the uh, tens of thousands of uh, 55 gallon drums of radioactive waste that been dumped in our oceans that are now rupturing and rusting and um so yeah it's not going to be the same planet it was before but we have to operate from the standpoint of well maybe nature is not going to save the planet with a a uh, truly horrendous pandemic so Mm. what can we do meanwhile and uh the simple well not easy but simple solution uh, is to shift our economy. I mean, it's our economy that's making all the difference. And, and uh, so we just need to shift our economy from this old pioneering mode of sprawling and extracting virgin resources to a restorative mode. Where And the good thing is, is you can make just as much money restoring the world as you can depleting it. So the you know there's already a, a trillion dollar, a couple trillion dollar restoration economy going on out there. 
So it's just trouble is it's not well documented. You know, most uh, countries accounting systems still only measure new development and maintenance. Hmm. And they forget about all the life cycle, end of life cycle stuff, the stuff that starts with re, that just gets lumped into the other thing. So it's, it's this huge, fast growing, inspiring economic sector that's basically invisible because nobody's measuring it properly. Well, hmm. even as you, as you speak there, you know, it's, it's, you kind of get this picture of, it's actually, you know, we're in this sort of throwaway society, right? You know, it's actually, it's, it's cheaper hmm. and easier and whatever else to throw it away, get a new one. And until you tax accordingly or incentivize otherwise, right, it, that's, that cycle is going to continue. Or oh, yeah, the, 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 the key to all of this is full cost accounting. Mm-hmm. You know, if we just in, install full cost accounting at every level, the situation is solved because automatically you can uh, – the the um, economic uh, benefits of restoring rather than destroying become plainly obvious. Right now, somebody can go out there and destroy a, a mangrove swamp and you know create a, a shrimp farm, uh, and it looks like economic development. It looks like it's good for the country because they're not measuring the lost value of those mangroves, all the millions of fish that they were going to create. So they've destroyed this fishery. Uh, in order to create a, a shrimp farm, and the shrimp farm probably won't last more than 20 or 30 years, and then you've got nothing. You've got your fishery and your fish shrimp farm. So, um, yeah, if you had full cost accounting, then they would know ahead of time exactly what the cost of restoring that mangrove swamp would be and what the cost of all the lost fishery production would be. And uh, if they still decided they wanted to create the shrimp farm, They'd have to pay a restoration deposit up front, which would be huge and would probably kill the whole project right up front. You know, it's it's already happening on a limited scale, you know, in most parts of North America, uh, like in Alberta, Canada. Uh, if you want to uh, create a new oil well, you've got to put up a restoration deposit and wow. the and they've taken I mean, that's that's common throughout America right now mm-hmm. uh, and probably many other places. Uh, what Alberta did was they said, not only do you have to put up a restoration deposit so that when the oil well is depleted, you have to restore the site to its previous condition. They said you have to continue um, paying into this restoration until that site is certified as fully ecologically restored, however long that takes. So it's not just a fixed amount. It could go on for a century. Wow. Full, I mean, how do you... <laughs> How do you uh, justify full, full, uh, you know, full restoration? That's well. That's the key. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Alberta is run by oil companies, and most of the politicians there are owned by the oil companies. So it'd be very easy for them just to uh, adjust the definition of fully restored <laughs> according to the oil company's preferences. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of have to hope that uh, honest government will exist long enough uh, for restoration to really be restoration and not just uh, uh, slapping some uh, astroturf on top of the, wa- the uh, well and running yeah. away. Wow. Uh, tell me, I mean, uh, do you think, is there many more ticking time bombs? I mean, have we stemmed the flow? Because, I mean, you talk about sort of, you know, almost nuclear waste and, and our methods of, di- of, uh, of methods of disposal, if you like, and, and that's all stuff, you know, you would kind of hope that our sins of our forefathers, if you like, I mean, have we learned the lessons? Are we sort of have we stemmed the flow of 
ticking time bombs that are going to come back and haunt us? Or? Some some of the worst worst examples of it, yeah. I mean, we're still building new nuclear plants, so we've still got more Chernobyls and Fukushima's coming in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know as far as legally dumping radioactive materials and uh, and other uh, toxic materials in the ocean, uh, which we did you know constantly in the 50s 60s 70s russia uk us you know just about everybody was doing it and uh, they didn't even pay attention to where they were dumping it they didn't they didn't uh, look forward and say well you know someday we might want to actually take this stuff out before there's drums rupture uh, so let's make a map of where we dumped it no nope. no maps so we're gonna have to spend billions of dollars just finding this stuff so yeah, there are a lot more bombs out there. Mm, just waiting, waiting. Tell me, how how did you get on in India? Did you make it to India? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, it took about a month and a half to hitchhike from Italy to India, um, and uh, another month and a half to hitchhike back. Uh, I also went up to Nepal and absolutely loved India. Uh, as a matter of fact, I still have a daily connection to India because my websites are all uh, created. Uh, by a fellow I've been working with in uh, India named Jay, Jay Peepavat. Uh, he's got a company called eastwestweb.com and uh, does a wonderful work, wonderful job. And uh, he's in Ahmedabad in the state of Gujarat, uh, which is interesting because Gujarat has some of the best, most innovative uh, government programs. Uh, they There's a story I've been telling for a long time. I did a TEDx talk in Washington, D.C., uh, I think about a dozen years ago, and where one of the stories that people loved the most was how uh, Pakistan, down on the coast of Gujarat, uh, Gujarat uh, is on the uh, borders uh, Pakistan, and they share a, a huge gulf there. On the Pakistani side, they had uh, conserved their mangroves. So the fishing was really good there because mangroves act as fisheries. Uh, that's where all mm-hmm. the little uh, baby fish go to hide while they're while they're growing up. Sure. And uh, but on the Indian side, they destroyed most of their mangroves, and the fishing sucked over there. So the Indian fishermen were uh, sneaking over at night to fish on the Pakistani side, and they were getting shot. And uh, you know it was threatening to become a full-fledged conflagration. So the uh, Indians, the, the Gujarat government decided uh, the best way to maintain the peace would be to replant, you know, restore the mangroves on the Indian side to restore the fisheries uh, so that their fishermen wouldn't have to steal the fish from the Pakistanis. So it was a great example of uh, restoring peace by restoring nature. Well, isn't it powerful, actually, how you can shift the power, right? So instead of, instead of trying, you know, it's, it's that... It's counterintuitive. So, you know, if you want more fish, you know, clear the area. But then exactly as you say, then there's no habitat for the, you know, the, the spawn or whatever it is uh, to actually create. So it's, there is a slight counterintuitiveness to the whole thing, isn't it? That, you know, it's it's placing it back into nature's hands as opposed to going the industrial, you know, bigger's better and, and scaling it, right? It's, it's just that change. Yeah, it's nature's hands, but it's also still economic development. You know, it's still mm-hmm. growing the economy when they're replanting those mangroves and revitalizing their fisheries. I mean, fisheries account worldwide for about 10% of the total global economy. Well, uh, so it's no small thing. Well, it's massive, isn't it? When you, when, you, when you scale it that way, you know, yep. going through. 
what uh, I mean, comparing, I suppose, the Eastern methods to Western methods. I mean, what what was your takeaway from that? You know, and your your sort of learnings and lessons in India, and, and you know, really sort of traveling, I suppose, versus the Western yeah, world. Well, um, you know, it's uh, it's especially healthy for Americans to travel <laughs> uh, because uh, you know it's a we're we're a very insular country here. You know, for most most Americans, you know, don't believe they've got anything to learn from the rest of the world. You know, we're just the epitome of everything good, and uh, couldn't possibly be doing anything wrong. So, uh, you know, it's Americans. You know, desperately need to travel more uh, if we're going to save this country. And uh, my, you know, my wife's from Mexico uh, and I, we spend uh, a month and a half in Mexico every year, which is tremendously therapeutic uh, because, you know, Mexico is the most Native American intensive country on the planet. You know, uh, just about everybody in Mexico, you know, although the ruling class is still primarily uh, pure blood Spanish uh, conquistador types. Um, they, uh, the ma- vast majority of uh, Mexico's population is either full-blooded Indian uh, or mestizo. You know, half Spanish and half Indian. So it's a it's a very indigenous-oriented culture. So when you get away from the big cities, uh, you know, you're 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 talking about a very very different uh, culture. You know, culture that eats insects uh, as a as a normal uh, Mm. Uh, just thing, you know, they realize, you know, it's great protein, they're delicious, they're all over the place, you know, look at these dumb Americans wasting all this food uh, and, you know, letting them eat their crops or poisoning their crops to get rid of them when they could just be harvesting them instead and and eating them. You know, every public market you go to in Mexico, uh, you'll find uh, baskets of uh, fried uh, grasshoppers or crickets, uh, grillos fritos, and uh, yeah, they're delicious. In fact, just the other day, uh, I can't remember now. Do you, do you guys get the uh, seventeen-year cicadas in uh, Britain? I don't believe so. No. Uh, no. Okay. I, probably a North American thing. So they're these big bugs, uh, very noisy bugs that come out. They're about two inches long, heavy-bodied. Um, they spend seventeen years underground, uh, sucking on plant saps. You know, sucking on roots. And uh, after 17 years, they emerge and uh, spend a couple of weeks uh, singing very, very loudly. And we're talking, uh, you know, billions of them. (laughs) Um, And they fly around looking for a mate. Uh, They can't eat. Uh, They don't even have mouths. Uh, They're just living off their body fat. And uh, so there's these huge clouds of noisy insects flying all over the place. It's actually a beautiful sound. Uh, Some people don't like them. but uh, yeah, they, uh, every uh, decade or so, there's a brood that's especially large, and we're getting the, one of those super large broods right now, uh, where literally trillions of cicadas are coming out all over the eastern United States. And uh, that's an incredible amount of protein. And the fact is, they're quite delicious. Uh, it's a major boon to wildlife. I mean, everything from foxes to possums to, uh, you know, snakes, you know, everybody eats cicadas, except the people. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Washington Post had an article recently with cicada recipes for those who'd like to uh, uh, try, give it a try. And uh, so I read that and thought, well, okay, it's time for me to try. And 
just a few hours after reading the article, I was uh, digging in my garden, putting in a new tomato plant, and there were a couple of uh, big fat uh, cicada larvae that hadn't emerged yet. And uh, that's one of the forms that's best to eat. And uh, so I tossed them in a skillet with some butter and had, had some leftover uh, homemade pad thai from the day before. So I put a couple of forks full of uh, pad thai in there and had cicada pad thai. And it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, that, just an example of the kinds of things I might not have done had I not been exposed to all these Native Americans in Mexico who just took insect eating to be the most normal thing in the world. So it's a, it's a healthy influence. Isn't that funny? And even that is a, is a case of instead of going against what nature is, because I mean, nature is, you know, the, the world and, you know, it, it's, it's huge, you know, while humans are powerful, nature sort of makes us look like ants in comparison. Right. So instead, instead of trying to fight it and say, let's get rid of these bugs and spray them and kill them and squash them and do whatever, yep. you know, those that I don't know, I'm not going to say they have less resources, but those are that are, are more resourceful, um, see the opportunity. Right. Yep. Oh, and of, I, I forgot to mention that they were delicious too. There you go. <laughs> you know, so. very, very much, very much like shrimp. As a matter of fact, they look a lot like shrimp. I mean, shrimp are basically just ocean insects, uh, so it's really not that much different. Um, the uh, what, what's really tragic is you know places like Africa, uh, where they get these huge swarms of locusts that eat their crops, and I'm not seeing anybody harvesting them. You know, I, I've searched and searched. And yes, some people are saying they should be harvesting them and eating them, but I'm not seeing anybody actually doing it. You know, these people are starving, literally starving because their crops have been wiped out. They've got the probably the best protein on the planet sitting right there. All they have to do is run out and grab them and cook them. And it's all just going to waste. Uh, you know, if they do anything about it, they're spraying pesticides at them. Uh, just such an incredible disconnect. It's not bizarre, isn't it? You know, when you think about it, there's so many resources at our fingertips, and yet we're spending yep. sort of an, an inordinate amount of time and resources to get rid of them, to then need to bring agriculture or something else to to, to bring it back, right? Yeah, huh? it's the same with algae. You know, you talk to uh, engineers uh, who are talking about how uh, they had a big fish die off in this lake or canal or whatever because of the algae. And the algae is not the problem. The nutrients that, that are creating the algae are, are the problem. You know, if you dump fertilizers from lawns and farms into the body of water, uh, that's going to feed the algae. And algae is like any other plant. It creates oxygen when it's in the sunlight during the day, but it uses oxygen at night. Um, so that's normally not a problem. The trouble is if your entire lake is filled with algae, uh, you know, too much of it, then at night, all that algae is going to use up all the oxygen and the fish are going to suffocate, mm. uh, which is exactly what happens. So you get these engineers running around dumping algicides into the lake, further poisoning the lake, when all they have to do is harvest the algae. The algae has already done the job of sequestering the nutrients. It's cleaned the water for you. All you have to do is take the algae out and now your water is nice and clean. So the algae is the ultimate water purification technology. But instead of harvesting the algae and feeding it to cattle or chicken after drying it out, you know, they're just poisoning it, which means that all of the nutrients that were sequestered by the algae now just go right back into the water again when the algae dies. 
Yeah, it's just, and it, these are professional engineers. They're actually paid to make decisions like this. <laughs> when you explain it like that, I mean, it is, it is baffling, isn't it? <laughs> As you say that the, the algae's done the job and then we kind of go, no, no, no. We got the algae is a bad thing. That's that's causing the problem. It's like no, the problem mm-hmm. is the fertilizer which triggered the algae. The algae's done that, put oxygen yep. in the water until the point that it's too much. So take that. But it, again, it comes down to money. In most cases, the engineers are making these stupid decisions because they're working for some big uh, chemical company that mm-hmm. makes the algaecide. So therefore, algaecide is the only solution. Yes, it's, it's the only hammer in their toolkit. So. <laughs> um, where again, you go down to Mexico, uh, like the uh, uh, Lago Chapala, Lake Chapala uh, down south of Guadalajara, uh, has a tremendous problem with uh, excess nutrients from all the farms around it, uh, and and from sewage coming in from Mexico City, which is actually quite a distance away, and um, the. Uh, uh, the p- folks down there, since they were just trying, they were just trying to come up with a solution. They weren't trying to serve some giant corporation. They had the intelligence, with the help of some uh, biologists at the University of Guadalajara, to say, "Okay, well, you know, one of the big problems we have is uh, uh, the uh, water hyacinths. You know, we're, it's the African species that plagues uh, water uh, bodies of fresh water all around the Americas, you know, South mm. America, Florida, everywhere you go, you see these water hyacinths, which are very, actually pretty, very pretty uh, plants, but they it's shade like a water, the water lily, are they? Is that kind of thing? Yeah, very, very similar to a water lily. Okay. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so um, they were saying, you know, we've got to get rid of all these water hyacinths and we've got to clean the water. Oh, wait a minute. The water hyacinths are cleaning the water. And, you know, if we dry them out, uh, the cattle seem to enjoy eating them. So you go down to Lago Chapala and you see all these uh, big dump trucks spilling water out the back of them because they've just been loaded up with water hyacinths. uh, And they're heading off to a farm where they're going to dump the water hyacinths, let them dry in the sun and then uh, and then feed them to the cattle. Uh, Yeah, it just makes all the sense in the world. But, uh, yeah, it takes uh, so-called ignorant farmers to come up with intelligent solutions like that. Wow. I mean, is there a point when if, if that then becomes part of the actual cycle that then they could potentially fertilize the water to then trigger, trigger this? Well, yeah, yeah. Anytime you get people dependent on a particular hmm. um, uh, med- modality like that, uh, eventually they're going to figure out how to mm. game the system. Mm. You know, it's like uh, uh, I read about one island uh, that was trying to get rid-, rid of all the invasive rats that were destroying its economy. You know, the rats that had escaped from uh, European ships, uh, you know, centuries ago uh, when the explorers were running around. And uh, so they uh, created a, a, a bounty. You know, they'd pay people for every rat they brought in. Mm. And naturally, people were gaming the system. They were raising rats at home and uh, you know, bringing them in for the bounty. Uh, so, yeah, you, you got you to gotta design systems to uh, assume that people are going to uh, game the system in some way. But still, I mean, it, it does create, you know, it puts value on a waste, which previously was a cost, right? So you, you have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you have repurposed a, a product, which then yeah. sure. changes the cycle, right? 
And I don't think you have to worry about people purposely dumping fertilizer in Lake Chapala uh, because you know, they're going to have more than enough fertilizer runoff naturally uh, from their farms to, mm. uh, to keep feeding the water hyacinths for a long time to come. That's fascinating. I, you know, and it's just, I mean, as you expand it like that, it's just common sense, right? You know, it's why, you know, why not work with nature as opposed to, yeah. No, no, nothing is more misnamed than common sense. <laughs> very, very true. Very true. Tell me, I mean, at the time of writing, you know, your first book there, you know, and you talked about there, the restoration economy and, and what was your initial intention with that? And, and is that book still applicable today? Oh, yeah. I, it, it's, I was kind of amazed, really. I mean, I'm not an academic. Uh, in fact, my only qualification for writing the restoration economy was the fact that I wrote it. Uh, <laughs> I had no background in the subject whatsoever. You know, I literally was learning as I was writing. And uh, the motivation, was I, I had been self-employed uh, back in the 80s for a while and loved it, um, but got to the point since almost everything I was doing was related to the natural environment. I got to the point where I realized, well, you know, the primary threat to the natural environment is the built environment. And I don't know anything about the built environment. Uh, and I didn't want to go back to college. And uh, so I figured, okay, well, probably the best way to learn a new subject is to get a job where people will pay me to learn the subject. And so I looked around, I found this, uh, organization, the Construction Specifications Institute, which is a technical society of about 18,000 architects and engineers and construction product manufacturers, and they needed a director of uh, strategic initiatives. So I uh, uh, decided to uh, uh, take on that nine to five job and it worked out beautifully. I mean, here I was surrounded by all these people involved in the construction industry. And uh, so I spent uh, almost six years being paid to learn exactly what I wanted to learn, all about the built environment. And, but the trouble was that I knew from the beginning that having been self-employed before, I could maybe last five or six years in a nine to five environment before I went crazy. So I figured I needed an exit strategy and decided that if I was gonna be self-employed in some new field, that writing a book would probably make the best foundation, you know, springboard uh, for a new career since uh, back then it wasn't quite as easy to write a book as it is these days. I mean, these days they've got apps where you can just knock out some crap and have a, have a so-called published book in, uh, you know, the next day. Um, I, I'm not saying all self-publishing is bad. My last book was self-published through Amazon's uh, mm. Kindle. Um, so, I, it can work out well, but uh, it just opens the door to a lot more uh, garbage than was open before when it had to actually be approved by a publishing house. My second book was from McGraw-Hill. Um, so I know both sides of the story. <clears throat> and uh, so I decided I needed that exit strategy and that the book would be it. So uh, I started coming in uh, from day one. I came in at six o'clock in the morning. And I researched and wrote until nine o'clock. And then at nine o'clock, I switched over to my nine to five job. And that way, every day I was closer to my goal. And uh, sure enough, at the end of five years, I had my book uh, written and published. Uh, came out in 2002. And uh, I uh, immediately uh, left CSI and 
you know, started earning my living doing talks and consulting and waving my book around showing what an expert I was. It's amazing. And well, I mean, what, that's the perfect qualification for writing a book is to write the book. <laughs> it's a, it's a yep, stand, exactly. stand for itself. It's, I love that. It's a very simple, you know, but I mean, it, it almost seems to be a bit of an ethos with yourself is, you know, showing and learning and learning by doing it's right. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it really only works when you're writing about something that hasn't been written about before. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, if I were to, you know, write a book on how to restore a historic building, I'd be up against competition from thousands of other books on that subject mm. uh, by people who actually restore buildings for a living. And I'd have absolutely nothing of value to say about it. Mm. That makes sense. But by by taking, uh, taking on a, you know, kind of expanding the scope to a level that nobody had ever written about before, I had carte blanche to uh, be the first yeah. There's, there's an old saying in the publishing industry that every, every field, every discipline has two great books, the first book on the subject and the best book on the subject. <laughs> very true. Very true. Once you find that niche, yeah, that's what it's all about. Yep. Tell me, what, what's, what's a great example, whether it be, a, a, I don't know, a country, a city, a town, a, a project that, you know, sort of a, a pet project that always sort of, sort of connects to your heart, which is a great representation of this, you know, this sort of regeneration, if you like. Well, um, you know, the new book, Reconomics, uh, is mostly focused on creating an actual process for bringing a place back to life. Uh, it's, it's really weird that, you know, every business person on the face of the earth who produces anything whether it's you know toothpaste or uh, you know toilet cleansing powder or trousers or torpedoes or you know whatever they might be producing, if they reliably produce it, you know, then they have to have a process for doing so. A farmer's got a reliable process for turning sunshine and rain into corn. Uh, you know they know they know that a process is absolutely essential to reliably produce something. The only people who don't seem to know that are the people who run cities and regions. Uh, there, it's all down to the projects. It's always you know we've got a project for that, we've got a project for that, we've got a project for that. Um, but there's no, but they they promise revitalization or regeneration or whatever you want to call it, uh, but it, they don't actually have a process for producing what they're promising. They basically just figure, well, we'll do a lot of good stuff and somehow revitalization will magically appear. And, you know, these are the people who are in charge of the future of a place and they're trusting to magic and hope. You know, it, it's really weird. So um, I've, uh, in my research, I was looking around for people who actually had invented a process. And the fact is that most people institute intuitively know that they need to have a process. So in most places, uh, the process that I actually documented in the new book, most there are six elements to it. And in most places I go to, they have three or four of the elements. You know, so they, they knew instinctively that that's the direction they should be going in. But because nobody ever gave them a template, they didn't know what was missing from the process. So what I've created with that, that six-step process is kind of a, a minimum viable process. You can add to it but you can't take away a process that's got a missing key step is not a process. And um, so I, I started looking around for places that had had one of these magical rebirths and found that the, 
the ones the most dramatic and the ones that actually lasted for a long time they weren't just a flash in the pan a sudden burst of revitalization and then just back to misery and uh, devitalization again the ones that really lasted were the ones who had actually created a complete process uh, the one that I wrote about in my second book the McGraw-Hill book Rewealth was Chattanooga Tennessee which went from being quite literally the filthiest the most hopeless city in the United States to a poster child of revitalization. And uh, the, uh, they, I documented in that second book, I had a whole case study on the p- complete process they put together of how they went from a place where everybody was at each other's throats. They had racial problems, crime problems, they're hemorrhaging jobs like crazy. Uh, it was so filthy, you had to drive with your headlights on in the middle of the day, the air was so bad. And, uh, they uh, basically went from uh, the armpit of America to uh, a place that people always talk about when uh, when they want to give an example of a, a magically revitalized place. Um, so you've actually got a similar sort of story uh, over there um, on your side of the pond in Liverpool. And uh, you've you ever heard of the, uh, the Eldonian community? No, not haven't. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a it was a community in northern Liverpool that was settled around the time of the potato famine, mostly by Irish immigrants, mm-hmm. and uh, they created uh, a whole bunch of tenements there, and eventually, as happened uh, all over the place during the seventies, uh, the uh, urban planners decided, well. You know, this place is too poor, it's too destitute, the buildings are in bad repair, we're just going to tear it all down and you guys can all go to live in these high-rise, penitentiary-style public housing on the outskirts of town. And these people had developed a really tight-knit community, and they had no intention of being separated from each other. And uh, they fought back in that great Irish tradition, Mm -hmm. and uh, (laughs) they won. They actually fought fought the city and they won and uh, they created a housing cooperative and they were given the rights to redevelop a huge site of an old sugar factory and um, they created their own whole new community there, revitalized the whole place and it's still going strong today. Uh, so it's another great example of a place that created the whole process, you know, the vision, the strategy, you know, the policies, the pro- ongoing program, the projects, you know, the partnerships, um, they, they did it all. So the Chattanooga and uh, the Aldonian uh, community in uh, Liverpool were uh, very, very similar stories that uh, used very much the same approach to. Uh, and the interesting thing was, just like Chattanooga people, these folks, uh, it's called, they're called Aldonian because the, the central street there was Eldon Street. Um, and, uh, they, uh, they, even though I said it was a tight knit community, their challenge was that the, this whole overall community was divided into tiny, tiny little parishes. Each one had its own church, its own priest, and they had absolutely no interest in what was going on in any of the other parishes, even though it was overall a, an Irish immigrant community, uh, you know, if you went one street over, you might as well be in another country entirely. Uh, but 
as a result of the common enemy uh, of the Liverpool City Council that wanted to wipe their overall community out, uh, that common enemy brought them together and they learned how to cooperate. Isn't it funny how <laughs> a negative influence can trigger a positive one? You know, mm-hmm. it's, yep. it's, you know, it's that sort of wrong. Yeah, in, in Chattanooga's case, it was national shame. Um, are you old enough to remember who Walter Cronkite was? No, unfortunately. Yeah, he's probably the most famous American newscaster uh, back in the uh, uh, 50s and 60s and uh, most beloved newscaster ever in this country. And uh, he went on national TV one day and called Chattanooga the filthiest city in America. And that national shame is what uh, brought everybody together, blacks and whites and poor and wealthy, uh, to uh, figure out how they can correct that situation. Wow, isn't it amazing how one thing can trigger another, you know, and that's... is it is that awareness? Is that knowledge? What is it, or is it is it a perception or a, a contrast that actually, I don't know, just helping people see what's possible? Yeah. Um, uh, the key thing there was that in their case, what they had to do is fix their air quality problem. And the good news was that the EPA had recently been created and they had recently passed the Clean Air Act, so the EPA actually had some teeth. Um, with which to punish or reward places for doing the right thing for their air quality. And Chattanooga um, initially didn't come together to revitalize the place. They came together just to fix their air quality problem. And they actually became the EPA's first award-winning city for uh, clean air. And uh, it was the process of working together to clean their air that made them realize that they could actually work together. And they said, well, hell, you know, now that we're working together, what do we do next? And some bright person said, well, let's revitalize the city. And that, so that was, that was, you need a catalyst. And in many ways, you need a leader. In uh, the case of uh, the Eldonian community in Liverpool, they had one charismatic leader, uh, George McCann, who brought them together. Um, somebody they trusted from within the community. In uh, Chattanooga's case, it, it, you could say it was kind of, uh, there was a local foundation that became the, the trusted leader and that provided the funding for them to create an ongoing organization to create a vision for the future. Hmm. What, I mean, what have you found to be the most effective? I mean, we have a local term here, do you sell the, you know, is, do you sell the sausage or do you sell the sizzle? You know, I'm just wondering what mm-hmm. what is the, you know, is it a shame factor that you you find being the best motivator? Is it is it money? Is it you know opportunity? What what do you find? Uh, what's been the common occurrence of change? Well, there hasn't been any real common type of catalyst. Uh, what the commonality is the fact that there has to be a catalyst. Otherwise, just pe- people just get used to every year being worse than the year before. Uh, so there has to be a catalyst that wakes them up and re- makes them realize that the time has come for action. And, uh, you know, it, the biggest problem is the, the whole uh, creeping crud uh, sort of situation where a place just gets more devitalized, more toxic, uh, more depressed uh, with each year. And uh, one of the big problems is the planning industry. Um, And it's not so much the industry itself, but the way the elected leaders use it. Uh, You know, politicians 
love to get up in front of the news media and ballyhoo their their good news about what they're doing to make the future better. You know, every politician promises revitalization. Uh, very few of them fulfill those promises, and very few of them even have the qualifications to make such a promise because they don't know how revitalization happens. Uh, but um, so what they do is they uh, they commission a plan. And they say, you know, and then they get up in front of the news media and say, good news, we have a revitalization plan on the way. And uh, so that's that's all positive stuff. It's a feather in their cap and there's no risk. All they have to do is write a check. And uh, a year or so later, the plan is delivered. They get up in front again. They get another feather in their cap for delivering the plan and still no risk. And the risk comes in implementation. Mm. All of a sudden, if you try to implement the plan, you might fail. And so they don't want to actually do anything that could be considered a failure. So the plan goes on the shelf and five or 10 years later, they say, guess what? Our plan needs to it needs an update. So they commission an updated plan, another feather in their cap with no risk. And the cycle just keeps going and going. And most cities have shelves full of previous comprehensive plans, revitalization plans, you know, strategic plans. They're all on the shelf. And it's demoralizing because after a while, the citizens get to think, well, you know, we've tried many times before to revitalize and it just doesn't work. You know, this place is just not revitalize, revitalizable if such a word exists. Um, you know, we, we might as well just give up. And it's all because of these uh, phony efforts uh, based on plans. As, far, as you say, I mean, you actually get them more... Oh, I mean, what is it? You know, people just become immune to it because as you say, there's a shelf full of bright ideas, but not one of them has hit the ground to become tangible. Yep. And th therefore you just say, well, that's just another idea. Or as you say, the last one didn't work. It's like, well, hold on, it never actually hit the ground. So that's why it didn't work. Right. Yeah. Are you, are you old enough to remember who Dwight Eisenhower was? No. Hey, you're younger than you look. <laughs> well, I, that didn't come out right um, <laughs> that's okay hard life it's okay <laughs> um so anyway dwight eisenhower was the uh, american uh, uh commander who became the supreme allied commander towards the end of the world war ii and he's the one who led the the d-day invasion and all that uh the one who who uh uh, was primarily responsible convince, for convincing Americans that we're the ones who won the war, um, even though we only did a, a little bit of uh, cleanup work towards the end. You know, the Russians uh, did all the heavy lifting, um, but uh, and you guys certainly uh, did all the suffering. Or mm. well, you guys and the Russians and the Poles and and all the other ones did the suffering. We didn't we didn't have any impacts on our end, um, but we're we're still convinced over here that we won the war for you. Uh, but Dwight Eisenhower came in towards the end there and uh, did the D-Day thing and uh, ended up becoming uh, president of the United States. And he had a famous saying. Actually, he had a lot of famous sayings. One of them was, beware the military-industrial complex. <laughs> I mean, people had talked about it before, but never before had, a, had the highest level military commander and president of the United States warned us that there was such a thing as a military industrial complex that profited from war and that would continue to instigate further wars to make money. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, he was a fairly enlightened fellow uh, by those standards. And uh, one of the things he said was that planning is vital, 
but plans are useless. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those documents are killers because as soon as a plan is in document form, uh, it's frozen. You know, it, uh, it becomes a snapshot of the past and every day that goes by, it's more outdated and uh, worse yet, it stifles innovation uh, because somebody comes up with a great idea and they say, well, no, we can't do that. It's not in the plan. So what's, what's your plan, Storm? And, and are you on the right path? Uh, it certainly seems so. I mean, I'm having the time of my life, uh, um, you know, Earning a decent living, and doing, you know, got a a, a wonderful uh, lifestyle with my wife Maria. Uh, we get to travel. Well, this year accepted. <laughs> we get to travel a lot, uh, and uh, the kinds of works I work I do, you know, helping to revitalize places is just endlessly fascinating because every day is different. You know, one day I'm working on a brownfields cleanup and redevelopment project. Next day I'm working on coral reef restoration or watershed restoration or, you know, community revitalization. You know, it never gets old. Well, just refreshing. And, and I suppose some of these, are, these are lifetime plans, aren't they? I mean, this, this is not just a, yeah, we started last year and project finished. We're all done. Right. You know, this is a, these, these are long-term things. Yeah, and now I'm trying to focus on things that uh, will uh, outlive me. I've just finally, very belatedly, got into podcasting. Um, how long have you been doing it? Uh, only two years now. But, oh, okay. um, well, you're way, way ahead of me. I just started about two months ago. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, you're familiar with the Patreon mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, platform? Yeah, so what I decided to do was... Uh, instead of just doing all these uh, videos and talks uh, for people at conferences that basically just disappear, uh, that I'd start doing uh, podcasts. I'm starting with audio versions of my three books, mm-hmm. and each podcast is, a, is another chapter. So it's not a podcast in the sense that this is a podcast. I'm not mm-hmm. interviewing anybody in those. I will eventually. Uh, but then I'm also doing videos, the kinds of videos I would normally, kinds of presentations I would normally do at conferences. I'm recording those and putting those on Patreon. It's called the Regeneration Team. And uh, it's basically a, a way that, um, especially young folks, uh, you know, since they're more podcast and online video oriented um, than old farts like me, um, the, uh, yeah, I, I, wanted, I put it on Patreon to make it really quick and easy for anybody on the planet to access the, these resources and uh, have them basically be there as permanent resources. Um, not that I have any plans to leave anywhere anytime soon. I like that. I mean, what? what I mean, do you do you have a legacy or a purpose? Where where, where would you like to see it at? Um, well, I mean, I'm already seeing people using the terms restoration economy all over the place. You know, people I've never heard of, uh, restorative development and all kinds of terminology that I invented. Uh, and uh, people talking about, you know, how, you know, we need a vision and a strategy and, you know, how we need all these different elements of the process. So, uh, you know, in most cases, they don't mention me, in many cases, they didn't even hear it directly from my books or my videos. They heard it from somebody else who might have read my book or heard a talk. Uh, you know, so just seeing the stuff out there, getting into the public dialogue is more than enough legacy for me. 
Uh, I mean, I didn't invent all of this restoration, regeneration, revitalization stuff, but I think I can take at least a little bit of credit for accelerating the trend. Absolutely. I mean, and but I suppose, I mean, you, you've had, listen, and, and I suppose we're all where we're supposed to be, right? So uh, having having views of, you know, Eastern culture and, and traveling and things like that, that gives you a, you know, a very wide, diverse exposure to different ideas, different, you know, sort of areas of the globe and how everyone deals with the, well, some to some it's a problem, some it's an opportunity, right? So yep. at least that's seen that diversity. Yeah, it also helped that I grew up in Britain uh, for a few years anyway. My mother was a war bride. So uh, I, I spent my first few years in in Britain. And uh, yeah, that, I think that uh, has always kind of kept my mind more open than the average Americans, even though I've spent, you know, uh, you know, 95% of my life here, mm. um, you know, that, that kind of, uh, widened perspective never really goes away. Tell me this. I mean, what, as a, as a young, you know, a young storm, I mean, what was your original plan? What did you want to do when you grew up? Do you know, did you have a, have an idea? I knew it'd be something to do with nature. I started off uh, as an amateur entomologist, I just loved insects, and that fairly quickly shifted into herpetology, um, and which has become a lifelong uh, passion. You know, reptiles and amphibians. Uh, yeah, everywhere I go, I'm interacting with the snakes and the turtles and the lizards as much as possible. And uh, so it was that love of nature that really got me into this whole restoration thing, you know, in the scuba diving, uh, watching reefs come back to life. Uh, most people think of me as an urban revitalization type of guy, but really I ended up focusing on that because that's where the money is. Uh, but, you know, the, the first love was nature. That's the actual explanation, is it? And, and being, being in nature and, and from that side? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'd much rather be in it than just talking about it. Speaking of which, I need to get out into nature. See ya. <laughs> Make the most, absolutely. It's, what's that? I mean, time and money, no object. What would you be doing? This. You're loving it. Yeah. Wow, that's so powerful. Yeah, I'd probably, if time and money were no object, I'd probably do it from somewhere else, probably somewhere in Mexico or maybe Panama. Uh, two of the places I love the most. As long as I've got a good, uh, good internet connection. I've been to places in Mexico that have much faster internet than we have here in Virginia. <laughs> what uh, what keeps you in Virginia then, out of interest? Uh, my wife's a doctor. Uh, she's got a clientele here, so um, until she's ready to hang that up and switch into probably full volunteer mode in some place that really needs free health care, um, you know, which is probably coming up pretty soon. Mm. Uh, we'll probably take off at that point. Yeah. Maybe find ourselves in Oaxaca. So tell me, I mean, what, what for you is, has been, is there sort of certain key things that are uh, simple successes, let's say, that, you know, that people can, you know, anyone could essentially implement? Um. Well, got to be aware of simple solutions to complex problems. Uh, what I've tried to do with this process is provide a simple way of organizing a lot of very complex and difficult tasks. 
Um, so it, it's not a solution unto itself. It's basically a path to a solution. You still got to do all the, the hard work and, uh, uh, you know, which in the real world becomes very frustrating, no matter how inspiring your mission may be. Um, you're always going to have to deal with uh, ugly people and, uh, and not very bright institutions. Um, so that's, that's why I try not to do anything useful. Uh, I just try to talk about it. Uh, I really don't need those sorts of hassles of actually uh, making real world changes. Uh, but the simplest thing somebody could do, uh, this is going to sound very self-serving, but it is the truth, would be to get certified as a revitalization and resilience facilitator. You go to Reconomics.org, get that certification. Uh, it's not going to make you an uh, expert uh, in getting things done all in one fell swoop, but it provides the kind of qualification you need to get into a position where it will give you the experience to become a true expert. Uh, right now, most places that want to revitalize don't have any way of knowing how to hire a person who understands the process of revitalizing. And uh, so that's basically what the certification does. People put RE after their name when they get certified and it gives mayors and uh, city councils and, or, you know, regeneration firms uh, the ability to actually find a person and uh, say, Oh, here's somebody who understands that overall revitalization process. Let's put them on the team. Mm. So tell me what what's talk to us about your, you know your latest book there and, and really what's what was it that sort of triggered you to write it and, and to bring it out then was it well I only put out a book every six or seven years and uh, this will I'll probably do a second edition of this one updated with more stories and examples uh, I seriously doubt I'll be writing a fourth book I don't think there'll be any need for it this one has really captured uh, the most important. Uh, lessons that I need to impart. Um, you know, so this one, the first one, you could look at the restoration economy as being kind of about the ingredients of revitalization, all the different kinds of restorative projects you can do that would revitalize different kinds of pro properties. The second book, Rewealth, was more about the recipe for those ingredients. How do you put all those different kinds of restorative projects together to get the revitalization, the, the quality of life improvement, the jobs, economic growth that people really want uh, when they do those sorts of things? And uh, so that kind of set the stage for the last book, uh, Reconomics, uh, which really distills it into a reliable process. Uh, the the, the second one was more based on showing the recipe based on case studies and here's what other people have done. Uh, so the, the third book uh, took that and uh, distilled in, into a much more concise, uh, easily replicable uh, process. Well, and in terms of, I mean, for you and, and when you're, when you're teaching and, uh, and, and suppose lecturing is, is, how many of those sort of experiences in the outer world, I mean, how many, you know, do, do, do you find people themselves need to regenerate? Do people themselves need to sort of revitalize themselves to, to get through this? Funny you should say that. It's one of my favorite sayings, uh, 
one of my own sayings uh, that I've been using for a long time is that what we restore restores us. Mm. What we revitalize revitalizes us. Uh, I've noticed this everywhere I go that people who are involved in restoring nature are themselves very, very revitalized people and people who are involved in revitalizing neighborhoods and communities uh, themselves are very vibrant and, uh, you know, full of life. And in many cases, uh, they came from a background of being exactly the opposite and that it was getting involved in a restoration or revitalization project that revitalized them. Yeah. Gosh, no, it's, there's, a, there's a saying I quite often, I, I, you know, I, I like to sort of see it. I think it's quite informative, um, but it's along the lines of, you know, your voids are your values. And so when you're mm-hmm. seeking and searching for something that becomes a, of a high value for you, you know, right. and it's, it's along that thing is, as you say, if you want to restore something quite often, it's because you, you need to restore or you need to be there. So I love mm-hmm. that. I love that sort of, um, you know, do you, do you find, I mean, is there, is there a volunteer network going with this or do you find is it is it mainly people who are this is part of their you know their sort of day-to-day work or is it studies you know who who's listening the most at this time uh, a lot of the people who are getting certified as revitalization resilience facilitators are not looking to do it professionally. These are just people who really care about their community. And in some cases, they're in a position like mayor or deputy mayor or something like that, uh, where they want to be more valuable to their community as a result of what they learn uh, in this course. Uh, but in other cases, they are purely volunteer. Uh, they're not earning their any money in any way from... Uh, serving their city they just uh, they just want to know this stuff so that when they show up at you know city uh, you know community meetings of some sort they can actually say something useful uh, but i'd say the majority of them are people who want to restore the planet for a living or revitalize communities for a living uh, people in many cases they're architects or engineers or professional planners or elected officials uh, who are looking at this as a way to uh, boost their careers and what what lessons did you take i mean coming from the green berets and you know that side and really th- through you know what, what did you take forward did, did you learn i suppose as to, as to where you are now um, well, if you're talking specifically about my military experience, um, I guess the, the three things I took out of that that uh, are still a major part of my life today would be first, scuba diving. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the, the adjunct to that is the kind of the second lesson um, was that you can actually be paid to do stuff that's fun or rewarding. Uh, I mean, granted, the Army's got a really uh, excellent uh, way of removing the fun uh, from scuba diving. Uh, they tend to do it in a, in a way that's rather stressful. Um, but the fact is that they paid me to go to Key West, Florida, uh, which is a place most people go to on vacation, and uh, paid me to go there and learn how to scuba dive. <laughs> and that really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that you know, if you choose your opportunities carefully, um, the kinds of stuff that you might pay money to do, you can actually be paid to do. Uh, you know, you've got to raise your standards a bit and mm. say, okay, my next job is going to teach me a valuable skill that's going to open up new opportunities for me. It's going to be fun and it's going to be lucrative. Yeah. 
um, just raise the standards. So many people have very low standards, you know, just any job will do, you know, as long as I've got a paycheck and yeah, that tends not to lead very, uh, not to lead to joy. Um, and the other thing, uh, the special forces, uh, taught me was the value of strategy. Uh, everybody uses the word strategy, but so few people really know what it is. You know, I, I go to talking to mayors all the time, you know, who tell me they're going to revitalize their city. And I ask them, oh, great. That's so what's your strategy? And they'll say, oh, well, here it is. And they'll pull a 300 page plan off the shelf. And there you go. And I say, no, excuse me, that's a plan. What's your strategy? And they'll say, oh, well, yeah, well, our strategy is to improve our quality of life and grow our jobs and be a beautiful place that everybody enjoys living in. And I'll say, no, that's a vision. What's your strategy for achieving that vision? You know, what, what's your strategy for overcoming the primary uh, uh, obstacles to achieving that vision? And about that time, they'll throw up their hands in frustration and walk away, uh, realizing that they don't really know what a strategy is. And... Uh, and, you know, all a strategy is, is a technique for achieving success. That's it. It's the flip side of a vision. If you've got a vision without a strategy, you've got, you've got a daydream. If you've got a strategy without a vision, then you've got a really excellent place of going nowhere, uh, a really excellent way for going nowhere. Um, so you've got to have the vision and the strategy together. And the strategy has got to be brief enough that you can keep it in your head. If you have, have to pull it off the shelf and read it, it's not going to guide your day-to-day -day decisions, which is what a strategy has to do. It's got to guide your decision-making towards that vision. So in many cases, a strategy is only a sentence or two. Uh, best strategy for re community revitalization I know of is only three words. Repurpose, renew, reconnect. And uh, that's behind some of the most spectacular revitalization successes on the planet. It's so strong in its simplicity, right? You know, it doesn't yep. have to be, as you say, 300-page documents. Yeah, just a few verbs. You know, strategies are verb-oriented, visions are noun-oriented and adjective-oriented. And I love that even, you know, and, and uh, sort of an example you used earlier, you know, saying it's, you know, it's using a very simple, simple solution to a complex problem, right? You know, it's the same thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, sort of produced by multiple levels of consultants and all the rest. It's just having the clarity, the clarity and the vision. Yeah, but the consultants don't make their money off of delivering three words. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, it's even the, but the simplest designs are the cleverest too, right? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's getting a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got another meeting coming up pretty cool. soon. Perfect. Well, listen, I mean, first thing I would say is, you know, in one or two words, what would you describe as your fire in the belly? Uh, well, it would have to be the rewords. Um, so, I mean, everything I do has to do with those three words I just mentioned as being the ideal strategy, repurpose, renew, reconnect, you know, looking around, finding assets, whether they're natural or built, um, that need a new purpose. And once you find a new purpose for them, a viable new purpose for them, then you can raise the money you need to renew them, which is that second step. 
And once you've renewed them, where most people forget uh, the third step is what uh, usually goes by the wayside. But what you what you can do that doubles or triples the return on investment uh, from what you've done previously in the repurposing and the renewing is reconnecting. There's so many communities and ecosystems that are disconnected. They've been fragmented from the overall system and uh, they'll never come back to life fully until they're properly reconnected. Well, Parvo. Tell us, Storm, where can people follow you, reach out, hunt you down, track you down, follow you, see what's happening? Oh, uh, well, probably uh, the easiest thing would be just go to stormcunningham.com. And um, that's my normal speaking and consulting site. And on that, that homepage, you'll find links to everything else I do, Reconomics Institute, the three books, um, the, uh, the Patreon uh, regeneration team. Everything's there at stormcunningham.com. Perfect. And final thought or an idea you'd like to leave with our listeners? Um. Just uh, just remember that uh, when you're feeling a bit depressed about the mess the world is in, that you don't have to be satisfied with uh, aiming for sustaining, uh, that uh, you, can, you can restore it. You can uh, undo this mess and you can actually earn a living doing it. Well, I like that. Don't aim to, don't aim to sustain, just you know, aim to restore. I love that. Yep. simple Storm it's been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you so much and uh, oh yeah. thank you mighty Pete yep until the next time thank you take care thanks for having me on thank you well that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly you know this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys and boy oh boy sometimes it is personal it's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on with loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.